TPR. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the TPR Pod. Today's episode is with a returning esteemed guest, Anshul Malhotra. Anshul Malhotra is an author. She's written her second book. That is precisely what we're talking about. It follows on from her first book, which was about the 1947 and subsequent 71 partitions in South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. The first book was called Remnants of a Separation. Some other territories have different names. But in that, she was talking to people who had survived the partition or their descendants. And the thematic element was how they had carried with them these objects across borders, across uh, hardships, and the stories held within those objects and, you know, the memories um, that they retained, that material memory sort of thing. And of course, there's a whole oral history umbrella that Anshul Malhotra is so involved in. This second book is called In the Language of Remembering. I've got it right here. This is not limited as much to objects or to people who have survived the partition. This is those people included, yes, but their descendants, their grandchildren, perhaps even their great-grandchildren. It talks about how the stories of the partition and the stories of the people who survived those times, stories of hope, fear, violence, happiness, struggle, strife, identity, all of that, how that has translated through generations, through storytelling, through conversation. Again, tying into that oral history angle that she's so deeply involved in. This is perhaps the first of at least two, perhaps more episodes, because I had only read a third of the book, as I mentioned in the episode. So we talk about what I'd read, and there's a lot of conversations um, just around that one bit. It's a great book. I recommend you all go and buy it. And yeah, Anshul is always, always great to talk to. She's always, the conversation always feels very it feels very authentic it feels very sincere and it feels very grounded and and this one's no different so without further ado let's jump right into part number 166 with Anshul Malhotra So what your book? You wrote the book um, uh, after how many years after Remnants did you start writing this? Well, the research for it started alongside Remnants. So around 2013, 2014, I think the first interview where I saw something like intergenerational memory emerging was in Lahore in September 2014. Right, okay. Or the like I, I started actually paying quite a lot of attention to how many generations were present in an interview. So the research continued um, since 2014 to now. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I started seriously writing, putting together, collating things in early 2020, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the book uh, finally was published in 2022. Okay, it got delayed. I think you mentioned me uh, that it was delayed because of COVID. So you started writing in early 2020. When was it supposed to come out? 2021. Okay. Later in the year. And then it eventually ended up coming out early 2022. So it wasn't super delayed? By a few months perhaps? By a few months, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, So you are not somebody... So I think Remnants was your first book. And... Mm. I think before that, you were not somebody who would call themselves a writer, right? Nor an interviewer, right? Because 
through this little song and dance show that I've got going, it's very different talking to people about a subject, right? People, especially who you don't know. Um, and and often, you know, you have Chalo with me, it's a podcast, so they're doing something and we're going to talk about something that they're doing. You're talking to people about one amorphous topic, but generally one thing, the partition of uh, India. Uh, but the people vary wildly, like, you know, who they are, what their circumstances were, their age, demographic, everything. Um, so you found in remnants a sort of anchor, which was the objects, right? Uh, do you think you're better? How was it difficult talking to people and finding a through line? Because you're not, again, talking to people as small dog. There is a purpose. This will become a book, right? So you, a person who is not a writer would say, this is like your first project. Uh, you have the objective that I'm going to talk to this person. I do not know about a subject that I don't know how they'll react to. And then I have to filter that through my mind and put it into uh, words that somebody will perhaps find engaging. How did that process uh, vary from Remnants, your first book, to this, your second book, which is also like sort of like a sequel to Remnants. How did that vary for you? Well, so um, I think always interviewing people is complicated. Hmm. It, it's always complicated. Um, sometimes when you know the subject matter is something heavy, like partition, it makes it even more complicated because you're wondering how to navigate that conversation always. Though I have to say that it's also an underlying thread. So, you know, you have that in common. And sometimes when you have this thing in common, there are aspects or emotions that perhaps don't need to be said out loud. They can be felt. Mm. Right? So in that sense, talking about partition is both easy and hard because of the shared history that already exists. That being said, I think speaking to strangers actually may be a little easier than speaking to your family. Because you don't have that burden of family history. You don't have that, you know, when you when you when you confess history, when you exhume history, you extract it, relationships change. Sometimes mm -hmm. for worse, sometimes for better. You change the way that you love someone when you realize the history that you've you've inherited. I think with this book, in the language of remembering, um, because I was speaking to younger people. I thought it was going to be a lot easier. But in fact, I found it a lot harder than Lemons. Mm. A lot harder than Lemons because people were younger and because they were my age or along the same generation that I was. And I had not expected the conversations to be as visceral. Mm. When you're speaking to survivors, you have this distinct understanding that the past is very much the past and what we are speaking about has already happened and is confined to the past. Right. But when you're speaking to descendants and this past somehow has found a way to permeate into the present, it's found a way to continue on, not as as uh, obviously or evidently as, as something physical. Mm. It's not a physical wound. It's something very, um, it's something maybe buried inside or some, some sort of like, I don't know, mental thing that carries on it's a kind of invisible inheritance is what i'm trying mm, to say mm. and when you speak to younger people and they talk about partition and how they are 
they are trying to work through it they are trying to not emulate the feelings of their ancestors because that's impossible they can't feel the same pain or the same loss or the same anger even but they are trying to create new relationships and situate their identity within this event that kind of changed borders and uh, nationalities you know to and so i think what i wasn't expecting is the kind of visceral uh vulnerable conversations that i received mm. and i did not expect to become so entangled in them i did not expect to feel that the book is, is so autobiographical because it, it it is and because i think sometimes people can say things that you have been trying to find the words to say yeah. right and so i notice this with a lot of my conversations maybe i'm maybe i'm going a little like i'm maybe i'm moving too far in the conversation but i did feel that a lot of things that i was thinking about but didn't have words for yeah but didn't, didn't even know if if that was for sure something that i felt was it found utterance in other people's interviews right so i i didn't i guess making a very long and convoluted answer to your question uh I didn't expect the interviews to be as intimate or urgent mm. as they became. Mm. Were you uh this perhaps might be uh <laughs> more revealing about me than you. Were you concerned about your ability to put those feelings uh like truly reflect those in the book? Of course. Huh. I mean of course that's a very natural thing like can I do justice to this incredibly intimate detail that someone yeah. shared with me. Yeah. Um because I think you have an innate responsibility to tell the story the way it has been told to you even if sometimes you may not agree with how it's being told. Yeah. Uh, and you have to realize very early and I realized this with Remnants also that it's really not about me. Mm-hmm. It is um it is about the story about the interviewee about the words that they have used about the vocabulary they have chosen to tell their story in and i and i had this innate responsibility to do justice to that so um i think how i gauge whether i have done a good job or not is by sharing the interview with my interview always so right. really cool i transcribe i write it out uh and in writing out you have a lot of your own uh, insights that you offer you know um not in like this is what i thought but by gathering secondary research also right and yeah. sometimes things are clearer to you mm. as someone who is removed from the story than to the interviewee themselves and so uh i would write things out and send it to people and then we would have a conversation about it sometimes it would be exactly what they had in mind mm. other times not so much sometimes of course Right. sometimes the things that you as an interviewee may have interviewer may have misheard this understood sure sure is represented because mm. of your background yeah and yeah. i think that conversation is very important it's a very ethical way of doing research as well where you invite the interviewee into the writing process as well mm. and only when we had um, completely only when both them and me were completely happy with the product that we had did it go into the manuscript mm mm-hmm. also what i was noticing because but, uh, i was sorry to uh, interrupt you also some interviews were conducted years before they were written right yes so in in those years 
people's understanding of their own history may have also changed. Yeah. yeah. Or they have discovered new things. So I think that that this conversation at the end, right before things were put in a manuscript, was really integral to the process. Yeah. No, because I was looking at that. This is also evident uh, in the book because there are conversations where people's uh, context of their own history is changing in like real time. Like they're as they're talking to you, like there's the story about the 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 Sial people who ended up being somewhere in Pakistan, but उनको पता ही नहीं था कि where they were from and uh, you know uh, they had no information about their history and then you share something from you know a history of like Punjab or something and they're realizing oh this is us and then there are questions about where are we from do we even belong anywhere that is updating in real time. which is like a, a a crazy thing to happen for somebody who has whose context about their existence is changing uh in an interview where somebody is asking about their feelings about the partition lekin another thing before we get to that story uh, was also cave uh, because i'm interested in the process you add a lot of uh because you know it's just you can't just transcribe what people are saying and then expect that to be interesting and convey the thing also because not everyone's a seasoned orator or something who can put all the perfect words in people don't know at times what they feel so then you're putting in you know they they're looking a certain direction their breathing changes their tone changes all of those small uh Okay. Sure, observations. Yeah, um, was that something? Your you have a history now. I'm like, how did she know to do this, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, so, I think if you if you read Remnants in comparison to this, mm-hmm. you're gonna find you're gonna find it there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that is because um, just of my education as an artist. Yeah, that's yeah. really um, you. I mean, you rely so much on visuals, visual memory, visual stimulus, just generally the visual when yeah. you create yeah. any form of fine art. I think it was literally inherent in me, mm-hmm. you know, um, to notice the small things. But I think also because I think talking about memory is not talking about memory, talking about personal history, uh, narration, anything. I don't want to think that it's verbal. Right. It it can't possibly be because there, as you said, there are literally things that we can't put into words, and we recede because we don't know how to put them into verbal language. And sometimes, when talking about trauma, particularly, mm-hmm. there is no verbal language. We right. we don't have a yeah. language of trauma. That's just something I realized quite early on that for countries that are literally born from trauma. we are not given the adequate language to talk about what happened so even when we start conversations with our grandparents we are like you know i saw this with myself mm. what do i ask how can i ask can i use the word pakistan can i say that pakistan was once there home there is like a hesitation to even think about the vocabulary or putting together because you don't know mm. you don't know the threshold of your questioning yet and we realize that threshold with each interview because each interviewee is different but um i think that i realized quite early on that 
conversations cannot only be verbal. They have to be gestural. They have to be contingent on movement. They have to be contingent on tone and pitch and how people change yeah. when they talk about certain things. And I just thought that was as important to record as what they said. Yeah. You know, oral history is is not only about what is said, but what is unsaid. It's it's so much about gesture and movement. And and I think early on, one of my interviews in the book also says that memory resides in the body. Mm-hmm. And it was so apparent. Yeah. Uh, how people react. How they, how they react to their own story. Mm-hmm. I wanted to record those things as well. So I think that was kind of like its habit. I don't know if I can really stop. I think it also helps the reader to actually visualize. No, it really does. Yeah. Because uh, I remember, you know, like a, a, a simplistic analogy would be like, you know, when somebody's talking about a past event in a movie and then you begin a flashback, right? So if they yeah. just say what happened, that mm-hmm. narration without the flashback visual, it won't have that sort of context and impact, etc. And that's that's what happens to me because I think in my mind, I have, uh, I've had like, you know, from childhood, this uh, insane imagination where everything becomes a visual uh, to the point where like, it's not even something I think about. What would it be like? Uh, so that's what was happening here. I think, where, I think it's the same for me. Like I don't, it comes very naturally. I don't think yeah. about it automatically. Like in my notebook, of yeah. course, I have an audio recording everything. I don't mm. really use video, but in my notebook, I very much write down like silence from this timestamp to this timestamp or um, the light I remember this one interview I did with uh, someone in Canada once where it was a couple of years ago over video call and he spoke to me when it dawn hadn't even happened in the day. Like the day was very, very early and it was totally dark. And as he began talking over the course of one hour, two hours, light began pouring in and eventually it illuminated this beautiful Fulkari tapestry he had behind him. So it went from dark to this like brilliant golden. Wow. And I I just I I put it in the book because it it needed to be there because yeah. I I thought other people needed to know this beautiful like illuminating scene that I had witnessed. Hmm. Is it easy to talk about see the thing is another problem problem uh <laughs> is you're not a removed party, right? You're not you're not somebody mm-hmm. who's coming from a different culture, history, perspective, looking at this as research or even, you know, trying to find an interesting story. Uh, you yourself are, uh, a, you know, a descendant of people who moved over uh, at the time of the partition. So do you have to consciously, is there a decision? Is I, I expect there's not one decision to be made that do I put my own context into the story? Do I remove my context because it might not match with what the person is saying? Uh, do you find yourself consciously thinking about that as you're putting the interview together? You're right, it varies person to person. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it is actually just about learning about something even I would not have known about. Right. But it, because maybe that interview is so geographically different from my history, or mm-hmm. culturally different from my history or situationally different from my history. Um, I, I am also curious. I am also learning. I am interested. Um, I don't even want to interrupt sometimes. Sure. And I interviews where it's just pages and pages of conversation because 
I'm learning alongside my reader. Uh, and I think actually that's a very good thing with a scholar that uh, to know that you are not like the know-all of yeah, it. Yeah. And, um, and I took it very much in this book as, uh, you know, this book is very much a learning experience for me as well. Because there were so many renditions of memorialization, so many different ways to talk about the same event. Um, but then there are, even within those interviews and others as well, there are things sometimes where people say when you, you think, yes, of course, yes, mm. this is how I feel as well. And uh, I remember at times me saying it, but then I remember at times just writing it down. Yeah, yeah. Not wanting, you know, like there was... I, I remember distinctly an interview where a scholar from Lahore is doing a PhD on Lucknow. Mm. And she says to me that uh, most people ask me two things. Uh, one, why are you doing work on an Indian city when you are Pakistani? Hence, why are you doing work on Lucknow and not stay Lahore? Yeah. And the second thing, uh, don't you think you should go to Lucknow once to see what it's like? Because she, she had never been. And she says something very important. She says that it's not, it's not essential for me to go to see what it's like now. My work is on the nostalgia that people have carried, like the Lucknow that they carry with them, the Lucknow that lives in their heart, in their dreams, in their histories. That is the Lucknow I am interested in. Mm. So it is not so important for me to, to go and see what it's like because I'm interested in the memory of that place unfractured by time. And I remember thinking, yes, I can relate to this. I understand this. And I never said it to her at the time, but in the book, it's like, okay, this I understand. Hmm. How and do you relate to this? What is your personal story here? I mean, like I've been to Lahore hmm. and my Nana and Nani are both from Lahore. Hmm. And of all four of my grandparents, uh, birthplaces. They were born in Dera Ismail Khan, Malakwal and Lahore. Nana Nani both from Lahore, Dada Dadi from different places. Lahore was most accessible to me. Sure. I went there and I had heard stories of what their house was like in Shahalmi and Chudamandi and what a syncretic life they had lived, how incredible Anand Khalid Bazaar was and sometimes when you go there, things don't matter. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, uh, the imagined landscape is filtered through lenses of nostalgia and magic. Yeah. Reality of a completely different era of now just doesn't add up to it. Yeah. And I don't regret going. I don't regret going because <clears throat> literally being there would prevent future regrets from happening from future generations. But I just remember, the thing is I, I went armed with the knowledge that the house wouldn't be there because I knew right. that in Shahalmi in June 1947 there was a very big fire that basically ravaged the entire neighborhood and, and reduced it to like embers, flames. Sure. So I knew that the house wouldn't be there but still like my belief in memory where I was going and I was looking for every four-story house with the kind of features that my nani sister had told me about. With um, the kind of, you know, they were like, and I was looking for those things that didn't exist. And I obviously didn't find them because they didn't exist. Yeah. But what ends up happening is people that are, you make rounds and you make another round, and you make different rounds and people see you walking and then, yeah. I, I think there's something on your face that says you're looking for something. 
एंड वो लोग जो बैठे थे भारत से आए हैं अपना घर ढूंढ रहे हैं एंड उस मोमेंट में ये वर्ड जो घर है लाइक इज दैट माई होम इट डजन एग्जिस्ट नाउ I I don't even know what it looks like. I can't tell you where it is. I don't have any uh, like I have no trace of it. But it it felt like home, like being in that place. Felt felt like it was mine. Mm. Those people felt like they were mine. I felt like these would have been the people my grandparents would have sat and had chai with, or you know, had yeah. they been still. So I think that I related to what she said because I do carry. like a memory of a place that has been passed down it's a second hand memory of a place it doesn't belong to me i am telling a story of a story that was told to me yeah yeah so there is so much removal and yet there is so much connection mm. and i understood when she said that the imagined landscape is far deeper denser sometimes more uh, people hold on to it more because that's how they they want to remember it sometimes several several people in this book have asked their grandparents would you like to go back or parents and some people say yes and some people say no yeah. and the people say, say no because quite often they know the image that they have preserved in their mind for decades may not match up yeah yeah the reality of, of what things look like now yeah this is a common thing at a with much less i suppose uh maybe not necessarily much less but seemingly less uh weight associated when people move abroad from pakistan or india and they have this image of you know yeah. pakistan mein to aise hota hai and you know uh, with their living in north america for example and that what i feel in this uh would be that you know it just shows that yeah your story is your story but also time just continues right and you're a small part of like this huge thing uh so yeah. it's like it's two things then it's like your story and your physical hold in the story of the place that might not exist right mm-hmm. physically mm-hmm. but if if it's important to you then it needs to exist in you right you need to hold on to it and it's still valuable even if it's not like you know anjal ko apna ghar nahi mila ya if i go to delhi which is my huge paranoia if i show up to delhi i don't know what i'll do how it'll happen and whatever i think i'll find there does not exist pick up and how will i feel i'm be like chalo that it makes sense but also i am disappointed <laughs> that you know um it's not there disappointed like i was i the thing is i knew i wouldn't find anything you so, knew yeah i knew mm-hmm. i knew um Did the fire happened, happened in uh, june yeah june, june so, so before the partition couple of months before yeah mm-hmm. because there was like there were a lot of curfews in lahore and there was rioting and uh, this fire has been very systematically recorded as well mm to oral testimony in in history and archive so i was right. able to and it actually plays a very big role in my next book okay um but now you have mentioned something interesting about you coming to delhi and i know that this is your podcast and i hate to put you on the spot but i also oh, kind no. of <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, sure so um full disclosure i interviewed 
Yeah. For everyone listening, you are in the book as well. Yeah. And a very interesting things happened with your interview because okay. I remember when we were first speaking from my perspective. Then we can get to yours as well. From my perspective, when you started, when we started talking about it, firstly you were so nonchalant about the whole thing. You were like, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. like the whole thing was, I don't know what you will find, and I don't actually have anything interesting to tell you. Yeah. And at that point, I think I was highly envious of how nonchalant right. you. Yeah, you mentioned. It was so right, and I write that in the book as well. It was like so cool. You were so cool about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. You're like whatever, it is what it is. And I remember thinking, God, I wish I was that like. say about my history you know because i think i just take my i think firstly i take myself too seriously but also like any evidence i have of my past i take very seriously so it was very refreshing to see someone who genuinely was like so nonchalant about the whole thing but then there was a discernible shift in our mm-hmm. conversation and i think that shift happened when when you began speaking about how for people who have come from hindustan there is no like native place for them yeah you know and this is a sentiment that so many people echo throughout the book not just pakistanis but indians and also people yeah. who now live in bangladesh that carry multiple migrations in their family that my native place my village is inaccessible yeah. to me and i think when you said that something in you changed and then you talked about your mother mm. who visited it and you saw a photograph of her in the 80s and you were very surprised that she was in delhi in the 80s when it was like yeah you know right um yeah. and then you said i couldn't believe that she had gone and there was an evidence of her being there because you knew that you may not be able to go ever yeah yeah and in the conversations we've had since then i see that you are more and more interested in in family history yeah it's also weird because my family history like i mean the the nonchalance thing is something i've worked very hard on <laughs> over many to, years to construct it or to deep like to like uh, i think it is not constructed but it is also something that i realize is uh perhaps not ideal for all situations in life and people can sometimes find unnerving because it is in everything right like i if i yeah yeah with me like it's very hard uh you know apart from things i'm interested in to chalo i'm interested in stuff and i'm enthusiastic and whatever um but in like real life serious situations or you know work or whatever it's very hard for people to gauge if i am stressed or concerned or whatever um or something similar to that and and uh i don't think that is something i'm consciously doing and then at times i feel like yaar mai to i'm not even concerned about anything and aisa to nahi hona chahiye so it's like a mix of several things um what happened with the thing was ke then you asked later on for the picture ke bhai tum keh rahe ho picture hai to bhej do um what what is going to happen with that by the way because i did eventually somehow find it uh is that going somewhere or ah, did, did no, it seem I, real i um i'm still working on it i created a reading guide for my books uh to help people literally visualize what they are reading about sure. Sure. but 
whereas I had a lot of control when it came to remnants for taking photographs of objects and stuff like that. In this case, you have to rely on uh, people sending you photographs. And there are photographs of objects, the photographs of people. So it takes a very long time mm-hmm. just uh, collate all that. Okay. Uh, apologies on, on that. No, front. no, that's fine. Uh, kuch na bhi ho to, it's fine. Um, khair, so there is this picture. Now, now I'm mobilizing my family who is... Uh, but I think you should... I think you should give a bit of context. The picture is, uh, I mentioned that there's a picture of my mother, her brothers and my khala in uh, India, apparently in Delhi and there's a darwaza. I have no idea. Is this even Delhi? Is this a darwaza? They're saying this is all of this. And then it is. It was. Um, it was the darwaza I went to work because I worked in the Red Force for about a year and a half and it was the yeah. door I every day. It's called yeah. the Delhi Gate of Red Fort. So, uh, the thing is that until a story becomes real, it's a story, right? Haan ji, tumhare to ancestors, uh, nani ke ghar wale to sab Mughal the, and I'm like, haan, bro, sab maha Pakistan mein aadhe log jo the, they're all descended from uh, Mughals, and uh, agar India hota, to hum, I, because I, there is this greater, you know, uh, Muslim subcontinental story ki pahi, we were the kings, or phir humar saath dhoka ho gaya, and uh, it's sort of I feel like people use it to uh, rationalize their difficulties in life at the moment by sort of thinking of when things were better. And it doesn't necessarily have to be super accurate that you were part of that better story, but it's like, you know, it helps people feel better about this. So my job is I'm an auditor, so I can't <laughs> not investigate things from this sort of cynical perspective. So... <laughs> story now at some point now it would uh my nani when she was alive uh this story would start becoming a bit more real because as a child i'm like okay Mughals, uh, whatever and then my nani and her brothers for me it was a story then it was like uh uh some old lady outside the taj mahal it's very poor i think she lived on the street or something descended from Zafar and Taj Mahal Indian government news it's a whatever it's a story Every other day, some descendant of the Mughals would show up and then my eldest brother would hold a press conference. I'm like, what? There would be a press conference where the family tree would be displayed. I'm like, why is my family the only people who are talking about this? Because now it's like, oh, you are really descended from Mughals? And now, jitna hume apni fabled history ka interest hai, uh, other people should know this as well. Khair, guzar gayi baat. Then, time goes on, nani passes away. Uh, there are other stories where it starts to, for me to seem like, maybe it's plausible. Maybe it's not a story. Because um, there are incidents that have happened, you know, in the past, someone gets murdered, whatever, over what? Uh, heirlooms. Like there was some talwar of some noble, some brother gets murdered, this story, decades ago. I never met them before my time. 
फिर क्या होता है अच्छा मुगल्स कौन थे मुगल्स वो डिसेंडेड फ्रॉम द मोंगोल्स ये वो तैमूरी इन सबका नाम है तैमूर इज यू नो ऑफ टैमरलिन वगैरह माई मामूज गोज विद माई नानी टू म्यूजियम इन द यू एस एंड देर इज अ मोंगोलियन वॉरियर एंड हीज लाइक हाँ आई एम लुकिंग एट दैट वॉरियर्स फेस एंड लुकिंग माई मदर्स फेस एंड दे लुक लाइक द सेम फेस सो नाउ पीपल आर लाइक ओ दिस लाइक सम यू नो जीनियस इट्स जस्ट सुलिडिफाइंग whatever chalo theek hai i tell her i'll tell my story and then she's like uh picture le aao acha picture aati hai picture again a huge problem to get this picture because picture was in pakistan nobody was in pakistan at the time to acquire this picture ghar wale come back which is why it took me so long to give it to you uh my mother comes back from canada the series scan hoti hai gets sent acha theek hai the door is recognized gate is a place then you ask this very different question अच्छा वो गए थे इंडिया अच्छा user that there are people who have been documented to very likely be actual descendants so it's not like there can be no descendants right because well, my idea was ke ye to sab kehte hain because everyone wants to be a mogul because that's a you know fantasy story of our uh, uh, region to acha then it turns out that the people whose name you find turn out to be the people the same khatoon who my mother her brothers and my nani who they went to their house to stay at so then it starts to become a bit more real i've forgotten her name but she there there is a copy of um, because she appeared in the national geographic as well mm-hmm. uh, i think based off the same william darlington story uh tahira begum or something i don't know that's somehow that's what the name seems like so ha huh, that was this unusual and name is kamar sultan kamar sultan so sure who's the heroine i have no idea um yeah so this was this weird journey where we went on where a family story of mine uh this is something you do <laughs> in other <laughs> interviews people have these stories and because you are a real person researching this stuff you have the facts and often the people don't have the facts and you somehow don't have the stories and this conversation becomes the bridge where what could just be a family fable is connected to ye to hua tha um and this person was real and yes, then that and I, story changes absolutely and i think it gives it gives a bit of validation to the family also sure you know um i think there's something very important about creating an archive of common people Mm. well you know that the story has been recorded both orally and with secondary research for posterity because for so long we just didn't record stories and then by we i just don't mean indians i mean pakistanis bangladeshis we just we didn't write anything down our stories are oral yeah isne kaha tha usne wo kaha tha ye tab hua tha but we don't have any records i remember a couple of years ago getting into this weird conversation with this lady from the uk who wrote to me with a photograph of a sari have we, have we talked talked about this ever i don't know 
Okay, well, she, she had this sari that had like a stamp of Bombay in 1944. Mm. And she wanted me to find out if I knew oh, what company the sari had been bought from. It was like a, a particular stamp. And I looked for it and I helped her and all. But in that conversation, she shared all of these letters that her grandfather had written, documenting literally uh, him coming to India as a soldier to fight. Yes, you, know, yeah. um, you mentioned this. Huh, huh. And... She, she was like, you know, I, I'm so surprised that a common person, he kept all these records. I'm sure your grandparents would have as well. And I was like, well, well, no, like there's nothing, you know, there's nothing because most people weren't even educated enough to keep records. Mm. And they didn't think of that. Here, your grandfather was on this incredible journey that he was taking and he was documenting it for you. But it wasn't really the same for the colonized. Hmm, hmm. So she was, not of, uh, uh, she was not of. Uh, she was not Desi. She was British. Okay. She was British. Okay. Okay. So uh, I mean, it just dawned on me that we don't write anything down. We don't record anything, and uh, it's it's something that's emerged as a rule for that I always think that I need to write for the future. So I need to record things about my past, about my present, that I think will help my future, hmm. because. No one wrote things down for me. It's so hard to do. Mm. You know, it's so hard to write the history of common people when you have nothing. Yeah. yeah. History, yeah. Huh? There's a, there is a lot of written history about, you know, India, Pakistan, whatever. But none of it is about, you know, normal people. No, it doesn't, it doesn't concern common people. It concerns like the corridors and capitals of, of the, the empire. Yeah. Something yeah. like... Uh, and, and I realized this quite directly when we were having that conversation, uh, her and me, because at the time I was writing a history of my grandfather's great-grandfather, I think, who in the late 1800s had been a police officer. Right. And specifically, he'd been put on plague duty in like 1987 or something. And, uh, you know, I found the exact thana that he was a part of, but even though I knew his his rank, even though I knew where he was from, even though I knew his father's name, his name wasn't in the record. Like I have his certificates, I have his uh, everything. I have. Was it like a clerical omission? Do you think or Janke? No, because there were no like brown people in that, and right. so the conversation was like, even though my ancestor was someone. And I have a record of that. He wasn't there in, yeah. in, in the archive. Mm. Like your grandfather would have so easily been. Mm, 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 mm. So, Just because of who he was. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't looking hard enough. Maybe he was there. But I, I was very excited to find this document. And very disappointed to see that he wasn't in it. Mm. Even though I had his certificates in my hand. You know? Mm. Okay. One thing. Because all the people you're talking to are, well, not all the people you're talking to, I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but many of the people you're talking to are those affected by the partition in the sense that they had to move from where their family was to somewhere else, uh, whether Khutse, whether Majburi Se, um, and you are talking to their descendants. Is this... The thing, you know, I was mentioning that uh, the Hindustani Mahajir people in Pakistan, they might have this sense that, you know, whatever. It's both. It's, it's, <laughs> there's a sense of entitlement 
that were amazing because we came here from India to make Pakistan. Um, but also there's the sense of injustice that we did this and you know, we don't have this and India is Our people, but then there's all the people who were Punjabi and they stayed in Punjab and you know, they just didn't have to move. Um, and the partition was a thing that happened around them, but not perhaps as much to them. Uh, is there, is there, uh, I haven't spoken to anybody I know about this, but in your experience, is the partition really an important event more so to the people who it happened to? Or, or is it like bigger than that? Like, is it only us who really care about the partition? Maybe if you would have asked me this question a couple of years ago, I would have said no. But I don't think it's the case. I think um, for many, like, I mean, in this book, there are people who haven't been impacted by partition. They've only heard of memories. And if something that happened 75 years ago can play such an important role in their life today, Mm. then it obviously tells you that you don't have to be directly impacted by something to feel intimately about it similarly even if you didn't have to migrate at the time of partition but everyone around you was and you maybe helped people migrate or you sheltered people Mm. or you cooked in a camp or you worked in a camp or uh, maybe you perpetrated the violence sure I think there are many ways to be connected to partition without actively migrating back and forth. Um, And that memory can also live on in psyche and be passed down. Like there are several several stories where, uh, I'll give you an example. For instance, someone said that um, my grandmother's friend who had to migrate during partition, my grandmother missed her so much so she named me after her. Yes, yes, yes. Something like that. Um, like it's not a direct memory, but it's it's a direct legacy. Sure, sure. Um, in India, in India, do you think it's like primarily uh, the uh, I don't know was South India affected much by the partition in terms of people coming in? No, Bihar? no, not as much. Like I would say, there was an exodus from people um, of Hyderabad, Hyderabad state, post forty eight, particularly when it was annexed to India. Uh, and there are some migrations that have taken place from, say, Kerala to Dera Ismail Khan of, of merchants who worked. I, I recorded this on story many years ago. There were some migrations from Vaisak or Vishakhapatnam to Karachi. Um, but it was not in the same numbers that, in, that it was in the north. They may have been isolated. Like many Sindhis, Hindu and Sikh Sindhis were relocated to parts of Bangalore at one yeah. point. Not yeah. directly, but ultimately. Um, but I don't think, uh, like, I think the most prominent memory in South India is during World War II, mm. when a warship came very close to Madras. I think it actually bombed Madras. Mm. Yeah, because so we do have, a, yeah. we have Goan uh, Christians right? in Karachi. Yes, absolutely. Yes, Goan Christians, that's another really big uh, yeah. community yes yes yeah and you know it's so interesting that they it's not i suppose you would assume i think also because they are christian it is harder to just assimilate into pakistani society as much and lose your identifying factors 
where you know like if you go to lahore you just become lahori eventually ek two generations baad uh but i think karachi mein na because this now that i think if it makes sense because it is so multicultural people hold on to their cultures like really zor se and there's no like overarching karachi identity that you can just merge into that overarching karachi identity is that there are so many cultures so the goan christians uh speaking exactly like, reminds me very much of bombay acha yeah okay kyunki the goan christian descendants the only reason i know that they're goan is cuz they speak exactly like the people from goa who i've met either in the uae or seen in bollywood movies and like oh this is like exactly you know the way those people speak so they must be and then you hear ha wo to the baki and i'm like it's amazing that like three generations down you haven't lost you know that specific places like vibe the same, the same for parsis also i find parsis yeah. in pakistan they very much yeah. hold on to very uh, proponents of their culture might also be a minority thing that when you know that you know you're not the majority and if you don't do your thing it's going to go away uh maybe you hold maybe you generalize yeah and <laughs> where is generalizing always because there are uh, there are many instances where assimilation is you know like because for us whether you are hindu or muslim sometimes it's difficult to tell right mm mm my shakal pe to likhane hai so sometimes uh, to assimilate is not so hard and sometimes you you want that invisibility particularly if you are a minority mm yeah yeah no of course that makes sense but like uh agar aapke you know if you're not actively or passively being mm-hmm. like you know persecuted and you're just like mm-hmm. you know but you're not also growing at a rate where you know that your identity mm-hmm. can be sustained i think parsis i mean obviously i don't want to speak for them but i haven't heard a lot of like anti parsi sentiment as much as i might have heard like you know in pakistan like anti shia anti sindhi whatever uh, everything ha huh. ek uh, there was a one book that i was reading my research in this uh, it's partly written by asim nanani sahab who is a reviewer for don newspaper and kuldeep nayak who used to be a very senior journalist um until a few years ago when he passed in india and um, in nadari sahab section of that book they were talking about being born in bombay and sialkot respectively and nurani sahab is born in bombay and a couple of years after partition him and his family moved to uh, first to lahore then to karachi and which is where he lives now mm. and now by this weird turn of events he chooses to come to visit his grandfather his nana who still lives in bombay in 1965 and when he's here the 1965 war happened acha <laughs> yeah and they you know and he says in the book like there were already tensions when i yeah. boarded the ship but i thought ki aisa kuch nahi hoga chalo chalte yeah yeah so <laughs> he comes in india and he basically is stranded in bombay for like two or three months and it's an interesting thing to realize that he is now the other mm. in the city that he was born Yeah, yeah. So there is an incident that he narrates about uh, someone has asked for some eye drops in Pakistan from a very specific pharmacy in Bombay. So he goes to that pharmacy. उन्होंने कहा हुआ है कि ये आएंगे हमारे eye drops लेने के लिए. So Nurani Sir goes to that pharmacy and he's like, you know, I'm looking for so and so person to give me these eye drops for so and so person in in Karachi. And so the pharmacist is like, 
you're Pakistani. And Rani Sab is like, no, 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 I'm from Karachi. Because he says that like, Karachi and Bombay were not at war, India and Pakistan were at war. And I found that like a sweet thing. But yeah. the other thing he mentions is that he was on a bus once coming back from a, from a movie, like, yeah, from a movie theater. And there was um, air raids. And at the time, they would do something called brownout, where they would take uh, brown paper and put it on the, like, the lights of the buses. Okay, yeah. Something like that. Right, right. No, I think it's so that you don't see it from the air, but the people yeah, on the right. Right. It was a similar reason why the Taj and the Victoria Memorial were like covered in black, um, so that it wouldn't shine. Um, so now he's sitting in his bus, and these two Parsi men are having a conversation in the seat in front or behind him, close to him. And he listens in on their conversation, and one of the guys is like, um, Listen, if a Pakistani bomb falls on a house, he won't know whether the house is of a Parsi or a house of a Hindu. I don't know why we are in the middle of these Indians and Pakistanis, of these Hindus and Muslims. Which I thought was like really funny because it's, it's true. Yeah. Right? The one goes, you're so right. I'm yeah. thinking of moving to, to England. Of you know, course. because he's right. He's like, if a bomb falls, he's not going to be able to tell whether this is a Hindu house or the Muslim house or it's a Parsi house. Yeah. So what are we doing in the middle here? You know? Mm. And I, I thought that was such an interesting, uh, interesting anecdote. The book is called uh, "Tales of Two Cities," not not a tale of two cities, tales of two something like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah, the Parsi community is, um, I think, reducing in Karachi. Yeah. There's a guy Bilal, uh, also known as Mr. Paki, on uh, Instagram. He has done a while ago. He went to there's a there's a community, you know, when you know that uh, 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 a demographic of people lives in a specific community, you know, they're not the majority because uh, the majority just lives everywhere. And usme, there were these like really nice houses and specific sort of architecture and khali because the people had left um, maybe to England, maybe wherever. Um, yeah, but it was really portrayed as sort of like this vanishing culture. Hmm. Uh, Karachi Gaiti in 2018, I stayed in Beach Luxury, okay. um, which is beautiful at the waterfront. It reminds you exactly of being in Bombay. Mm. And it is owned by a Parsi family, the Averis, who have hotels all over Pakistan, which uh, are very much still Parsi owned. Um, there was a lot about, there are a few themes uh, around the partition, which I think uh, in your book were becoming more clear to me okay this is sort of like a not really sort of but it's quite similar to a, a holocaust kind of event uh but not given that sort of weightage uh in what is the global perhaps uh conversation so it's not given that weightage even though devastating uh you know sort of violence was inflicted or something um but also the big difference there was that the Holocaust is supposed to be Nazis against Jews. Here it was, and some people in your story also say this, in the book also say this, that uh, there was a big idea of the British caused this, caused us to fight amongst each other. Um, 
And also, like, you know, even if we remove the British sort of instigation of this, it was basically people fighting amongst each other. Um, and that led to this huge sort of scale. And it's always, is, is that, uh, Pakistan, you know, this is not the official version of events. Uh, we don't, you know, I'll just keep it to Pakistan. Pakistan, mein to ye tha ke, uh, obviously, Pakistan was very important. Uh, because, uh, you know, Kale Azam thought that um, Muslims won't have a good future and we need to have our own place. It was, It is never, I think, because that would go against the idea of Pakistan being legitimate. It was. It is never associated with the British cause this. Right. It was, Alam Iqbal had a dream, as Jaila thought he actually had a dream. Uh, and then... Muhammad Ali Jinnah was against it, but then he became for it. And now here we are. Great success all around. In the Indian education system and general understanding, um, is the British element uh, considered to be like part of the main story that they instigated the partition? Ke jate jate, uh, you know, we'll do this because everyone loves to say the British love divide and conquer, the British love divide and rule. Um, so is it historically considered valid? If we look school textbooks, this is one part of it. Divide and rule does make plus factor in, for sure. Also, what factors in is uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah hmm. uh, was the creator of Pakistan. Yeah. Even A very British know. person himself. Well, yes, that, that is not taught to us in school. What is taught to us is that he is the reason why partition happened and he, you know, yeah. um, is the reason why India was divided and stuff like that. But this is, I want to see a very simplistic understanding of what actually happened to, mm. to a far more complicated reality. Mm. Yeah. Multiple viewpoints. And it really, really does depend on what kind of history you read to understand what really happened. Because, you know, Jingoist state histories will tell you anything to legitimize the current national yeah. state and relationships yeah. with its neighbors. But I think it's quite important to understand it from multiple perspectives, which is also why we study partition, right? To understand the multiple viewpoints and consequences of what happened. So, yes, I think in its very, very rudimentary, simple, and sort of school textbook state, yes, both the British and uh, Kaidazam are held responsible. Yeah, okay. Uh, because this is... Right, I think the same can be said for Pakistan studies. You know, it's it's very rudimentary, very simple. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. In in your, in the Indian history books, this will be seen as like a great, perhaps, betrayal or batwara ho gaya or sab kuch perhaps. Um, it's certainly won't be a positive event. Right? Um, but, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, um, maybe four or five years, uh Indian history textbooks have included more oral history. Really? Which never used to happen when I was in school. Uh, And uh, that was interesting because it it was taken from like popular textbooks, uh, popular books like Udrishi Botalia's The Other Side of Silence and other oral history projects. And it was encouraging students to embark on an oral history project of their own to understand how... I suppose to question, but also to learn of fresher perspectives mm. in the family or even just to delve more into family history. And then when the pandemic happened, I think this entire segment on partition was removed. 
because it it was very traumatic for students. Acha. Right. No, because the risk over there, I feel, if I was, uh, you know, I'm thinking from a Pakistani perspective where there's an official narrative. If Pakistan has something like that, that will, okay, you open up oral history encouragement uh, as part of the perhaps official curriculum. Uh, that will open up potential, the fear would be, it opens up potential challenges to the official slash correct narrative. Um, right. So why was this done in India? Uh, I think because in general, oral history is gaining importance Achha. as a legitimate, legitimate source of remembrance of the past. Um, because there are so many oral history projects now. And it is one of the only things that can actually fill gaps sure, sure. in official archive. It also allows for communities whose histories have been erased by official archive to be heard. Hmm. Um, so I think it was a it was a step in the right direction. Of course, huh? Yeah, yeah no, I just I am uh, cynical. But, but of I, I, I no, no, you are absolutely right because I am thinking like there is also the thing is it's very it's something I face a lot when doing oral history as well. Recollections of nostalgia or lament are very widely found. Hmm. And where there is space and language to be found for these kind of nostalgic recollections where, you know, there is a loss of the Edenic village or the Edenic city and uh, wealth is taken and people are removed to the state of being paupers. There is space and language for this. But everything else is quite difficult to even touch on the brutality of violence or to look at something critically is quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Because the, no story is one-dimensional. Though it may right. have been in a very one-dimensional way, like we all left us, we didn't have anything, we started from scratch and then we built this big empire. That's a one-dimensional narrative, but there is so much more, there is so much more nuance to these life stories where, you know, and it's very evident when you speak to survivors that it's, it's very hard to tell a one-dimensional narrative because you may say okay, they came and they burnt our houses and they looted, but then you will also say, yes, but you know, they who were from our village helped us. Yeah, the Hindu yeah, yeah. helped us or the Muslim helped us or the Sikh, uh, yeah. you know, gave us space to hide in their room. Or so. so it's it's very complicated. Relationships at that time were very complicated and there is no one, there is a danger in homogenizing the story of partition to one narrative of, of yeah. displacement, of violence, particularly. Yeah. It's very, very dangerous. This is why you need the multiple voices. And this is why oral history, you know, oral history comes with its own shortcomings of whether or not you can, this is a question I get a lot, can you trust what people are remembering? Of course. But it is, it is its subjectivity that is its strength. The mm. fact that it allows you so many multitudes of human narratives of partition. That is the strength of oral history that allows people to speak for themselves yeah. in their own voices. Yeah. Because, like, what is the alternative? They're not going to be in the official history books. Uh, they're not, these sort of stories aren't considered generally before this um, change in uh, what you were mentioning earlier in the curriculum. Generally, all histories are told from such an extreme, like, high viewpoint, such a macro level 
کہ یو نو چرچل صاحب نے یہ کہا اور پھر ہٹلر نے یہ سوچا اور پھر نہرو سیٹ دس اینڈ دین قائد اعظم گو ٹی بی ہو گیا یا وٹ ایور اینڈ دیر از لائک آئی فیل دس از اگین سم تھنگ دیٹ آئی ہیو فورس ٹو کنسیڈر وین بیکاز آف مائی فوک یو نو نان چلنٹ ایز اٹ از اسٹیٹڈ مینٹیلٹی پیپل آر ان ایبل ٹو سی لائک دا وائڈر پکچر بٹ دیٹ از ناٹ اے فیلنگ of theirs because there is so much happening in their immediate life ke it is easy to feel like how do i take a step back from all this madness that's happening in my life to consider ke nahi ye bhi ho sakta hai wo bhi ho sakta hai by the time you get to that stage sab ho chuka hai right yeah and i think it was actually impossible for people at that time to consider what was happening outside the immediate circle they really literally did not have the means to do it and phone nahi tha internet nahi tha kai kai der tak to aapko pata hi nahi chalta tha ki aapke gaon ke bahar kya ho raha hai you know yeah. so like to consider that people migrated great lengths without quite understanding what had happened what, what happening you know why they were migrating who was doing it and of course how these official um decisions trickle down to the common person like most of the people i interviewed had probably never even seen a firang hmm. they didn't see the sign yeah 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 of course cuz itne the like you know there weren't as many to go around hai lekin ab apne gaon apne shehar se aap nikle hi nahi exactly اراؤنڈ یو So how can you believe that this is the ideal state? And secondly, you've never been anywhere. So how, without this information, are you making this assertion and believing it yourself? Um, so it, it's like, so it's not just... Huh? Yeah. No, I, mean, I know, I know. Um, it's unfair to say but only Pakistan is like that. But what I'm saying is that it's not just that there was technology at that time. So people didn't know. Now you have... every means of you know uh, information but that doesn't mean that you will necessarily look for it and even if you find it you will understand what it is it's just like you can't expect people i think to be able to understand um this really puts us in like an amazing position ki hum bahut intellectual hain isliye humne ye soch liya but i think because of various happenstances in our life and privileges and whatever uh you, even we understand ke ye shayad it's not as cut and dried right because the risk here is ke someone like anshul mehra or me chalo is like i know exactly why the partition happened and what i understand is the oh correct just to clarify i i don't i, know. I don't of course of course yeah huh. yeah 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 because that's the risk that you know it's <laughs> not like there's no perfect solution huh. to any of this Um, right. and the the thing where people just believe something they hear there is a story of i think this sick person uh it's just this in this story a sick person goes to a couple of hindu boys sitting in a village 
एंड ही इज लाइक वो देखो वो मुसलमानों की दुकानें हैं वो कितने आराम से अपनी चीजें बेच रहे हैं एंड हाउ आर यू गाइज ओके विद दिस एंड द हिंदू गाइज आर लाइक ब्रो क्या हो रहा है नहीं वो ये कर रहे हैं इधर एंड अच्छा द नेक्स्ट टाइम इज वी गो एंड रैन सेक बिकॉज दिस गाइड टोल्ड कि दिस इज हैपनिंग ऑब्वियसली हंड्रेड पाकिस्तान में भी ये हो रहा होगा वट इज नाउ पाकिस्तान के वो हिंदू अपनी चीजें बेच रहे हैं हाउ कैन यू मुस्लिम लेट दिस जाके जला दिया मार दिया वट एवर इट रियली मेक्स मी फील बैड अबाउट ह्यूमैनिटी एज अ होल कि हाउ ईजी इज इट टू जस्ट टेल समी अफ्यू रैंडम ट्रिगर वर्ड्स एंड यू जस्ट बिकम लाइक दिस um a robot of violence uh that will do anything the most heinous thing and then going back to the holocaust example uh not everybody who joined the german army was possibly uh, initially always knew that jews are supposed to be bad and we are supposed to hate them kisi ne kaha hoga wo man gaye and then they just did this insane stuff and after it's all done they're like what what did we do and then you have people unke descendants I feel like you're not on board with all of this but <laughs> it's just it's it's so weird because if i think of me this enlightened educated person i'm like what does somebody have to say to me ke ab i will also do this insane madness and phir main soch raha hunga ke maine ye sahi kiya you know what you can say in your book as well Right, right. So, in that particular example that you took of um, of the gentleman going to the young boys and saying, "Let me go to the shop." Me, yeah. There, and this group of men does actually uh, indulge in violence, and they do loot and possibly kill the owner. The reckoning doesn't happen at that moment for that mm. person that that is in the interview. The reckoning happens decades later. while speaking to his grandson when he is in his 90s and the reckoning is not also brought on solely by his memory of what has happened the reckoning is brought on by the conversation with the grandson and then the grandson is forced to consider whether he may also like you yeah. say what does someone need to say to me yeah for this anger burn in me do i still have that gene of violence is yeah. violence transferable gene hmm. and so i think actually that interview was it it's kind of it's giving me this want to think about it but it took a lot of courage to say something like that that my ancestor may have been a part of the perpetrating mob he may have done things and i don't know what he may have done and i'm still finding out what he may have done but I do know that he regretted it later, and it's quite convoluted. Uh, this that interview because it's not linear. Yeah, yeah. And it contradicts itself on many occasions. And the interviewee, the young man, also says, "I know that this interview is contradictory because my grandfather was a complicated man." Yeah. But you have to understand that things aren't remem- remembered in a linear way. Mm-hmm. So though he may have done this, he never hated Muslims. and he never believed in the superiority of one religion over another and a lot of those things that he says contradict the yeah. actions of grandfather yeah, exactly i think that sometimes uh and look i don't understand uh, i have never spoken to a perpetrator myself sure i have only heard stories that other people have heard either from them or of them 
So it's difficult for me to make, and even if I would have spoken to a perpetrator, it would be difficult for me to make a blanket assessment of whether or not they felt absolved of their guilt or whether they still felt guilt or whether they felt no remorse. I, I can't oh. say. Yeah. And there are two examples in this book where stories of perpetrators are told to me. In one case, there is some sort of reckoning of what they had done. And in another case, there is no reckoning. Mm-hmm. And it should also tell you that there's no easy way to tell an inherited story. Yeah, of course. And as they are telling the story, they are very conscious of the fact that they don't want you to paint them with the same color that you may be painting their ancestor. Yeah. They, there um, may be shades of that, but one person's crime cannot be transposed onto another's decades removed. Of course, of course, by association. Right, but they are very clear of this. And where one person is, is quite honest, he's saying, do I also have the ability to do this? He's, he's saying, you know, you don't need, even a post, a Facebook post can can turn someone into rage, which is so huh. Right. But he's questioning it and he's confronting it. And I think there is something incredibly courageous invoicing that. I, I was very surprised to be on the receiving end of that conversation. I was really uh, felt like quite a privilege to be let into something he was still figuring out on his own. And um, yeah, I, I think a lot of these conversations are like that. Like you emerge with enormous respect for mm-hmm. how these people have been with you for what how much they will let you in yeah, and how yeah. much the 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 discovery of the past still impacts them. They very much want, you know, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Like at the end, all you're doing is piecing together parts of a story you have collected from from various sources. Because for some people, that their grandparents or parents may not have told them anything, and they may have heard snippets of or, or names of villages and cities on the other side that are now changed, and they may not even know that. And so it, it it's like a jigsaw. In creating this intricate web of history where you have where you have no like actual information, but you're just borrowing and you're doing research and you're looking for stories of those similar places of other people thinking, oh, maybe my my grandparents also witnessed this. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is a lot of effort to to preserve the past. Mm within subsequent generations, there is a lot from from yeah. all parts of, of all three countries, in fact. Yeah. Huh. Bangladesh, I think, often gets removed from my perception of partition because it was not the uh, uppercase P partition, but uh, uh, it was, you know, insanely uh, chaotic in its own sense and mm. uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I feel the the cynic in me is very quick to judge all people, um, including myself. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's so easy to turn people against one another. I think this is, uh, again, going back to, because I keep drawing these Nazi parallels. Uh, they, they, there was, I think, Goebbels, he said it's very easy to tell people what to do. 
you tell them that this party who is different is the enemy and anybody who doesn't agree with this is a traitor. And but now everyone's on your side. And uh, which they did to great effect. And we see this every day in our lives by people who are not such movie villains. Um, and it's it's really telling about hum- humans that taking a step back and seeing, does this make sense? This thing that I'm being asked to believe, it's very hard to ask people to do this or expect them to do this. Um, but you are, I feel, uh, even though you have said that you are a, a cold person, uh, <laughs> I feel, <laughs> I feel that you are not, uh, perhaps, you know, you might feel that way about yourself, Lakin, because okay, you are in my personal life, not in the work that I do. I can't uh, afford that cold in the work. Uh, exactly. Um, I wonder if the, these two things are related. But the question that I was going to ask was that because you are clearly uh, inviting all this sensory, you know, perception from people, like the weight of their stories, the way they're saying it, the way the visual presents itself to you. Um, has this, how do you find yourself dealing with the, the weight of this history. Everyone asked that question. Yeah. It's an obvious because like these stories are so heavy and but the thing not... is, you know, if you're in the middle of recording three, four, five stories a week and you know that time is not on your side, people are dying, you know? A COVID especially uh exacerbated that for many people. A lot of people in the 80s and 90s passed away in the last two years so you know like time is not on your side you have to do this work now so if you are recording actively you may not even think about what it's doing to you Mm. it is only when you stop or maybe like in my case when I heard stories of enormous violence that I I couldn't stop thinking about it and um, I know many people they record their interviews and they transcribe after many months when they've had a bit of distance from it. Unfortunately, that's not what I was doing. So, by choice, yeah, just that's just the by choice. My time, like, I don't know. Um, and I really needed to after a while pause for a couple of months because it it does impact you. When you do like dream about it, it's the voices that stay with me. Mm. I remember how people said things. I remember what they said. I remember when they laughed, when they cried. I remember when they, you know, took out a book and showed me a map. I, 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 I remember it. There was and a lady that, who spoke Portwari and she, as you were leaving, she grabbed your hand to say something to you and her son wanted the conversation to end, obviously because he was concerned about his mother. But yeah, that's like a, that's like, no, no, and also, again, you're concerned. I think it was because it was a history of when she was abducted and he he didn't want her to talk oh. about it. Yeah. Okay. He was afraid of what she would say. Achha. Achha. Not concerned as much, perhaps. I'm sure, only... I'm sure that was concerning as well, like how it would impact her when she said it. But what would she say? Hmm. Uh, which is another example of men 
speaking for women because every time in the conversation she would try to say something or I would try to ask her, she would look towards him to say, can I um, answer the question? Ultimately, when she did hold my hand, yes, uh, it was to tell me that a letter had come many yeah. years after she had been yeah. returned to India by the authorities and that letter had her name on it. And just seeing her name on a letter, it could have been a, a bill, could have been an electricity bill for all she knew, but just she never opened it. She never opened it. She 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 just I think she tore it up and threw it away because she the fear was what if my abductor had sent me this? Yeah, and he's still not around where I am, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So um what was our initial I'm like I'm, how does yeah, the concept right, right. like, okay no 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 um see this is the thing like you think about the ways people tell you like now i'm thinking about how she grabbed my hand and where we were sitting and it really draws you in mm. you know um and what i have found is that now i just need to distance myself from the subject for a while mm. at least engaging with it in this kind of real these real stories i need a break uh, yeah. I can't actively think about partition after constantly talking and thinking about it every day for the past decade because that's how long it will be next year. Yeah, yeah. And I just I think uh, just feel like a really uh, heavy person. It is very heavy. It's, it's very huh. hard to hold on to people's sadness and vulnerabilities and do justice to it and constantly think about it and draw connections to several people across several territories, across several decades. and Your family? My family, but then make sense on platforms like this where you're, you're, you have to draw from different sources constantly and you have to constantly keep all the stories at the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I know that there is also a real, like there is a real joy in doing this work. Yeah. It is a huge privilege to be on the receiving end. Like I feel enormously privileged to have recorded stories of Indians, but also Pakistanis and Bangladeshis who speak to me regardless of the border that is between us and strive to literally find what unites us rather than what divides us. Or if that's something divides us, then talk it through. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I find that very uplifting. Like that for me is the hope for the future, one-on-one. -on -one conversation, reconciliation, yeah. or whatever reconciliation would look like. It has to be hinged on one-on-one -on -one yeah. relationships, you know. Huh, and it must be said that it's so, you know, we've talked about, you know, your the heavier stuff a lot, and that is often what is spoken about a lot, uh, I suppose, because people also could say gravitate more towards, like, you know, the darker uh, sides of stories. But you have uh, several, like, sections with stories upon stories about friendship, hope, you know, reconciliation, all of that happening in the book as well. Um, which, which you know, which also must have, if the bad stuff has a negative impact, the good stuff would most definitely have some sort of positive impact on you. It's, it? <laughs> yes, on me, yes, and I hope on other people also. The thing is that you need stories like this uh, to change some of the misconceptions Mm. about who the other is and yeah. what the other is and the construction of the other that has taken decades to form. So it's I'm not like I'm not saying that someone will read something and automatically think the other way about an Indian or a Pakistani. But it may 
help them to think, oh, wait, this person is saying the same thing that my mother says. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I think a lot of times a, a very mundane example would be that Indians love Pakistani dramas. Love them. Yeah. <laughs> love, love them. Yeah. And in so many cases, I've heard things like, um, oh, in that drama on Zara, they spoke Saraiki that my grandparents spoke and I never heard in India and it was only through that drama that I understood that dialect, you know. Or um, my mother was watching a Pakistani drama where they use the same phrase that my nani used to use. And then she started thinking about if they still use that phrase and we still use that phrase, then surely there must be other things that, you know, are common between us. Like it's very mundane things like this. Yeah, yeah. Just like official history doesn't record normal people then official perhaps ideas of reconciliation don't think that such small things can connect you uh how committed <laughs> i know you're very busy how committed are you to the idea of uh doing follow-up episodes i am very committed to that and i will make time don't find okay huh so uh, how about so this has become a very long episode now already huh and there's, there's still so much more um uh okay so whenever you know your schedule in the coming weeks uh let me know and <laughs> like, I'll, I'll make that deadline okay i have to get through this um yeah okay there's a few other things that i texted you about that i think we'll keep because i think um, the those questions will sort of change as i read more uh, and as we talk again uh how's this been this thing we've done so it's far? like how we speak like just yeah. yeah okay yeah. okay i hope i haven't uh put more formal press pressure on your mind kuch kuch to tha I think that these questions are important to ask. They may be uncomfortable. Yeah, I talked about Nazis way more than I expected. I was also a bit taken aback by that, but that's okay. That's completely okay. Hopefully. In fact, I would like to recommend a book from that time. Okay. A very clear book uh, called The Third Reich of Dreams. Okay. Where uh, a young woman goes around recording people's dreams at the time and the dreams that have... People say that the Nazi regime has infiltrated their dreams. And right. she goes down and records those dreams and writes a book about it. Wow, that's crazy. Like at the time of the Nazi regime? Yes. That's how. Huh. Okay. Are you... Still, we're done with this episode. Um, where do you want people to find you on your Instagram? The book will be linked uh, in the description. Uh, send me some... Because there's one place... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I have it here. This is the book. It might be yeah. reversed on the thing. I'd remove the cover as well. Um, but is this... Hopefully, I will reverse it back. No, yeah, link, you will perfect. link it. Um, yeah. We I read it. a lot of my my notes. Uh, I'm a huge note maker, taker. I write in my books a lot. So. Yeah. 
I was thinking of doing this, but I was like, no, you don't want to do it. everybody. <laughs>